How many of you were here on Easter? Raise your hand. Let me see your hands. Did we have a good time on Easter Sunday or what? It was, it was amazing. There was, there's just such um, an amazing sense on Easter Sunday that I think is different than any other Sunday of the year because there is a, a recognition, a realization by God's people that we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you uh, were not able to be here on Easter Sunday, or, or maybe you were and you have a family member that you think would really benefit from that particular message, you can go on our website uh, or you can go on, on uh, YouTube. It's been posted to Facebook as well on the church's Facebook page. And you can uh, listen to that message or share that message with another person. When you get to it, you can email it to a friend. There's lots of options that you can do. Uh, but I tell you what, I think that's a message that is going to uh, produce some spiritual fruit for the kingdom of God. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, some of you told me that you even went as far as to kind of warn your family and friends, hey, on Easter Sunday, people in my church get a little excited, you know, and um, I'm glad that you, you prepared them for that, um, about how excited we would be. I think on Easter, we tend to sing a little louder on Easter. I think we tend to clap a little better on Easter. Uh, I think we, we tend to um, really... Uh, get into the service overall just a little bit better. We're a little bit more enthusiastic because we're celebrating that Jesus is alive. And, and so then we hit after Easter, okay? And, and it, could, it could feel like, man, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a, of a letdown for us. But you see, that's where we have to understand that Easter is not an end. It's not a conclusion Easter is a beginning. Are you with me? Do you get what I'm saying? Easter is just day one in the new kingdom. That's, that's what it is. It just, it's not just anything. But, but after Easter, that's when the world began to change. And today, we start this new series called All In that's going to look at the commitment of the early church. And so today, I want to share this message with you that I've titled The Ultimate Buy-In. And I'm going to use the word ultimate uh, three different times uh, for, for each of my points, one for each of my points. And we're going to start out with the ultimate impact. I want to talk for a minute about the ultimate impact. We're, remember, we're talking Easter, you know, has happened. They didn't call it Easter. They called it what? They called it well, they had the Passover, and then they, the next thing they knew, Jesus was alive. We, we call it Easter. We call it Resurrection Sunday. But according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, let me just give you a little understanding of the, the starting with the resurrection, what has been the impact, okay, on, on our world. When we go to Acts chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus has just ascended and the disciples have gathered together in, in, a, in a place and they're waiting because Jesus said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promised gift of the Father. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, 
we read a number. There is 120 that are gathered together there in the upper room. Now, 120, when you think of Christianity, 120 is not a huge number, is it? But that's where we start. We know that throughout Jesus' 40 days um, of, of, or 40 days rather, um, of when after his resurrection, when he appeared to people, we know that during that time he appeared to 500. We don't know if they were all believers, but we assume that most of them were. So that number 120 in Acts 115 really is, is not a full representation of how many believers they are. Uh, there are, but, so we assume that, that it's somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 500 um, that are believers at least. And then we go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. Let me read it for you. It says, Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So from 500... This is what we see happening. The church is beginning to grow. 50 days after the resurrection, excuse me, was what was called the Feast of Pentecost. And on the Feast of Pentecost, Peter preached that day after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we read that 3,000 additional men came into the church. They became believers. It's important for us to note that the scripture says, men, I realize that today we would not write it like that. We would include all who believed. We would not eliminate anyone, but that those words would, would mean males probably 12 years old and above. So 3,000, not including any children younger than that, not including uh, any any ladies, but 3,000 in one day are added to the number, let's say that it was 500. So now we're seeing that increase. And in a short period of time, that number begins to swell considerably. Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, but many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed, grew to about 5,000. So now here in, in two short chapters, the church is growing. And the church is growing exponentially. If we would add in the number of women who would have believed, if we would add in the number of, of children who believed and had accepted Christ as their Savior, that number could have risen, let's say, to fifteen or 20,000 rather than 5,000. And so in just a very short period of time, we see uh, that literally those who are accepting Christ, is, they are exploding in Jerusalem. Are you with me? Jesus was in Jerusalem. He, he was crucified in Jerusalem. He was buried in Jeru- just outside Jerusalem. And now the city of Jerusalem is exploding with those who have come to know Christ. In Acts chapter 5, 
Believers continue, it says, to meet publicly. They're highly regarded. And then interestingly, it says more men and women. Eventually, Luke adds in here that there are women. So, so those are now becoming part of the body of Christ. More men and women are believing and they are being added to the church. And due to the impact of the good news of Jesus, the atmosphere in Jerusalem is changing, okay? In Acts 2.47, it said they enjoyed the favor of all the people. But now just a short time later, there we see that there is a shift in the attitude and in the atmosphere of the city of Jerusalem, they're no longer um, just being um, just being put up with, or or even uh, those in spiritual leadership in in the Jews. They're they're actually starting to get upset, okay? And they begin to mistreat the apostles initially, but then when we get to to Acts chapter eight and verse one, it says, "On that day, a great persecution." broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So we're we're just a few chapters away. Time frame, I don't know exactly the difference between Acts 2 and Acts 8, but really we're probably talking about uh, months Maybe, maybe it's, uh, it's a year, maybe it's two years, I don't know exactly, but it's not a long period of time, and the atmosphere now has changed, and the church, the believers, are being scattered. The apostles are staying primarily in Jerusalem, but the believers are picking up and leaving Jerusalem, and it says they're heading first to Samaria. Now that is to the north. And then we find that they head to the north and west to Phoenicia. We find that they go to Gaza and Egypt, which would be to the south. Then they go to the Syrian cities of Antioch and Damascus. They go to Cyprus, which is modern Turkey. They go to Greece. They go to Malta. And ultimately, they go to Rome itself. And this is really important in the impact that the kingdom of God, the gospel has this persecution that broke out. Chris Park of Lancaster University says this, speaking of Christianity, he said it spread fast and numbers grew quickly. Within the first century, there were an estimated, I want you to get this, one million Christians in the first century. Jesus when he died, we were already in the 8030s. So in a period of 70 years, we see that a million have come to know Christ. And the prolific spread of Christianity was concerning to the Roman government, to the point where in 8110, only 80 years following Jesus' crucifixion, a man named Pliny the Younger, who was the governor of a Roman province called Bithynia, which was the northern coast of Turkey, he sends a letter to the Roman emperor Trajan. And in that letter, Pliny the Younger says to to the emperor, I'm having trouble doing what you want me to do. 
You see, at that time, the Christians had been blamed for the burning of Rome, which most believe was done by the emperor Nero. And the Christians were picked out because at the time, they weren't a big number of people. They were an easy scapegoat. But by the time we get to 110 AD and Pliny, Pliny is complaining because he's having to search these people out. He's having to arrest them, try them, and execute them. And his complaint is this, that literally the sheer number of people is so great that it's making this extremely difficult for him as the governor. Here's what we read in a work called One Jesus, Many Christs by Pliny. He says this, For many of every age and every social class, even of both sexes, are being called to trial and will be called, nor cities alone, but villages and even rural areas have been invaded by this infection, the infection of this superstition. So within decades... The Roman Empire is being put on its ear and they're saying that Christians are everywhere and they are so prolific that we're having a hard time punishing them all the way you want us to. Christianity grew at an incredible rate and it reached every level of society. So you say, why, why would that have, have happened? Not, not so much that, that, um, that the Roman Empire was trying to punish them, but, but what was it that, that caused that growth to happen the way that it did? And one of the things that I think was my second ultimate, and that is the ultimate example. Anybody here been in the military before? Raise your hand if you've been in the military. I want to say thank you for serving those of you that have been in the military. One of the special elite military kind of ops teams that we've heard a lot about in the last few years that we didn't hear a lot about before was called the Navy SEALs. And the SEALs, um, they say that 80% of those who um, begin SEAL training will drop out before completion. So only the top 20% will uh, remain in the program and actually become a Navy SEAL. In the Vietnam era, um, and there are, there are basically generally uh, only eight SEAL teams at any one time um, in the Navy, and of those eight SEAL teams in the Vietnam era, in fact, two of the, of the ones, they aren't even recognized by the government. The government doesn't even acknowledge that they exist. Uh, but two of those elite groups of fighters, they were so effective that for every one of them that was lost in battle, there were 200 of the enemy that were lost in their direct conflict. So it was a 200 to 1 ratio. That tells you the the incredible quality and training of those particular troops. The creed for the Navy SEALs is this, I serve with honor on and off the battlefield. I lead by example in all situations. Former Navy SEAL Brent Gleason said this, I love this quote. He said, people truly follow only those they trust. One of the best way to build trust is to lead by example. The early church followed the example 
of one man. You know, as they looked to get rid of Jesus, one of the things that they talked about was, you know what? Let's not do anything to these people because if this is not of God, it's just going to go away. They were speaking of the good news of the new kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. And, and we see that not only did it not go away, but Jesus provides this example. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Jesus demonstrated the ultimate example to his followers. On Good Friday, we celebrated the death of Jesus. Well, we know that uh, before Good Friday, Jesus met with his disciples and they had what was called the Last Supper. And if you recall the words that Jesus spoke at the Last Supper, Jesus talks to them, uh, he said, when he gives them the bread, he said, this is my body, which is for you. He is making a direct correlation. He realizes that his body is going to be given. When he gives them the cup, what does he say? This is the new covenant in what? My blood. Jesus is saying to them that he knows how he is going to die very specifically and that he is going to die imminently. It is going to happen soon and he was indeed arrested that night and while he was in the garden, he even said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will but yours be done. He knew what was coming and he went anyway. That's called being an example. We learn from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 20 that he was fully aware of what was happening. Beginning at verse 17, Now it says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, Look at this, verse 18. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus knew what was happening. He knew exactly how he was going to die. He knew that he would be raised again on the third day. Jesus willingly went and he provided that examples and his followers were following that example. We see it several times. Even before Jesus was crucified, we see his followers following his example. We kind of joke about it sometimes, but the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, she approaches Jesus and she said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you allow my sons to sit on your left and on your right as, as positions of prestige and, and authority? And Jesus really was kind of shocked by this and he asks them, he said, do you think that you can drink the cup, meaning death, um, that, that I'm assigned to, and their answer was, we can. That's what the scripture says. We're already willing to die for Jesus. How about Peter? Uh, Peter was, was so willing to die that when Jesus was arrested, he pulls out a sword 
and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. We know that Peter was ready. In John chapter 1, 18, verses 18 and 19, it said uh, Jesus is giving Peter an idea of how he's going to die. He said, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And in Matthew 26, verse 35, Even though Peter has denied Jesus, what does it say? Peter declares, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter said, I'm willing to die. John and James said, we are willing to die because they are following in Jesus' example. And Jesus is revealing to them that he is going to die. So how is it? that his disciples are willing to follow him even to death. Friends, leadership opens doors for others to go through. And that's what Jesus provided in his example for us and for those that were following him. I always think it's amazing when leaders raise up those who seem to take what they've invested in them and take it even farther than the leader himself. Now, this is not the case with Jesus, but I will tell you that Jesus has raised up many who have been willing to say, God, I will literally put my life on the line. Which brings us to point number three, which is the ultimate suffering. Jesus promised his listeners that those who obeyed him would be persecuted just as he was persecuted. In Acts chapter 5, following their interrogation, we read that the disciples rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now that is, I think, an attitude that we have not conquered here in the United States or in the West in general in the church. Maybe in other parts of the world, they have, they have experienced that and, and they can say they, they count themselves worthy, that they rejoice for being worthy. In Acts chapter 6, we read of a man named Stephen who performed miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 7, he was stoned by the Jewish leadership. This is within just a matter of weeks, maybe maybe months of Jesus ascending into heaven. And, and literally, they've already begun to kill his followers. When... Stephen was being stoned as they were throwing the rocks at his head. Acts chapter 7 records that he said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Where do you think he heard those words possibly? Could it be that he heard the words of Jesus while he hung on the cross in Luke 23, 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Imagine that so soon after Jesus had said those words that one of his followers would be saying those words and making the ultimate sacrifice himself. Paul was the most influential man other than Jesus in the first century church. 
and he describes his ministry as being exposed to death repeatedly. Can you imagine having a job where you are exposed to death repeatedly? That would, that would be a job that I think we would want to have be short-lived. Wouldn't you agree? But that was Paul's calling. In 2 Corinthians 11, it contains a list of sufferings that Paul experienced. 40 lashes five times. 40 lashes minus one. So 39 lashes five different times. He was beaten with rods, which is the, the equivalent to being caned. Three times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. He spent a night and the day on the open sea. He experienced hunger, cold, and nakedness. And he says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, for me to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul saw his death as ultimately a gain. To die for Jesus Christ. Although scripture doesn't tell us exactly how Paul died, the early church historian Eusebius claims that Paul was beheaded on the command of the Roman Empire Nero shortly after the burning of Rome. Jesus' other disciples, the rest of the twelve other than Judas, we, we know that Peter was crucified upside down during, in Rome during Nero's reign. Andrew was scourged tied to a cross where he died two days later. James the Greater was killed by the sword by Herod Agrippa. John the Beloved was the only one of Jesus' disciples that was not killed for serving Jesus. Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, crucified. Bartholomew was beat to death and crucified either that or skinned alive and beheaded, history tells us. Thomas was run through with a spear for preaching the gospel in India. Matthew was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia. James the Less was beaten and stoned and killed uh, by being hit with a club at 94 years of age. Thaddeus, who was sometimes called uh, Judas, but not Iscariot, was crucified in Turkey or Greece. Simon the Zealot preached in Africa and England, and where he was crucified in AD 74. By AD 200, Christianity had permeated the Roman Empire, and by 325, there was an estimated 7 million Christians in the world. But there's another staggering number. Of that 7 million, there were 2 million that had paid the price with their lives. They had paid the ultimate price. The great historian in the 3rd century, Tertullian, said, The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And these followers were willing to ultimately suffer for his name. Now, just so you know, I'm not suggesting today that Jesus is calling you and I that in the next weeks or months that we're going to wind up giving our lives for the sake of the gospel. I'm not suggesting that that's 
that's happening now in this country or that it will necessarily happen soon. But I, I do find it interesting that in our culture, it is admirable to die for something. Do you, you see what I'm saying? That if you believe in something so much, you're willing to die for it. The problem in our culture is this. We don't have that same feeling about living for something. Do you get what I'm saying? It's easier to die for something than it is every day to live for that thing. What I believe that Jesus is calling us to today, as the church, is to live for Him. I believe that He is calling us to the ultimate buy-in that we would be willing to live for Him above anything else in our lives, that we would be willing to serve Him. 